0: Today on BASIC, original MTV VJ, Alan Hunter.
1: Look, five years into it, we were all going, how long can this last? I can't believe it's lasted this long. If you're working for a channel that believes change is the dealio, that's their manifesto. We will change everything and recycle it and get something new and something new. Why would five VJs hang out? I think we were a good core base for sure. We started seeing new ones come in like downtown Julie Brown and Adam Curry in that, but when JJ and Nina got let go, we thought, oh, okay, I felt that my star was still kind of on the rise there at MTV because I was on board the new direction, which is not just being a video jukebox. The allure of the video jukebox 24-7 started to wear off around 85. MTV had a hard time really getting ad dollars, and it was much easier to sell a show like Remote Control or to promote Spring Break or whatever. So they started moving in that direction for economic reasons, and I thought it was a fine evolution for MTV to embrace lifestyle.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome to BASIC, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and I want my MTV.
0: And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. And listeners, you can't see this, but I am wearing an MTV shirt.
2: You know what? You used to be able to get a lot of stuff done with an MTV t-shirt. People really love those. Our guest today is one of MTV's legendary five original VJs, Alan Hunter. And for those of you under 40 years old, a VJ is an abbreviation for video jockey.
0: Alan was there when MTV launched in 1981, back when it actually played music videos. And in the early days, that was literally all it did. And it was glorious.
2: Yep. That's why they called it music television. At the time, a revolutionary idea that took off like a rocket behind heavy rotation videos from the likes of Michael Jackson, Madonna, and I think one of your favorite bands, Jen, Duran Duran.
0: I love how he says, I think one of your favorites. It's cute. It's cute. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was quite a time to see, you know, anybody who mattered was on MTV and television and music were never the same since.
2: No, it wasn't. So enjoy uh, this conversation as we hop into the Wayback Machine with Alan Hunter and keep listening after the conversation as Jen and I become guest VJs on our very own podcast.
1: Alan Hunter, thank you for being here and welcome to BASIC. What fun to be on BASIC. Uh, Yeah. This is the most BASIC podcast i know of it it, there's no question about it it may be the only basic (laughs) podcast we hope who knew that cable would be so popular in the world of podcasts worldwide
2: (laughs) yeah exactly speaking of cable we start off every episode by asking our guests do
1: you remember the first time you actually saw or watched cable television Well, I had to be going to college in Jackson, Mississippi at Millsaps, which is where our friend and boss, Bob Pittman, went to school for a while. That's why I know Bob, and that's why I got my job. I'm pretty sure it was an HBO show. HBO was, I guess, a paid thing, but it was on cable in the beginning. It was. Um, You know, I I came from Birmingham, Alabama, so I didn't exactly live in the sticks. But cable, from what I understand, came about, what, 50s or something to – Bring television to people who couldn't otherwise get it on broadcast, so that they could bet on the games and and stuff, <laughs> so that they could gamble. <laughs> that's what, that's, what, that's what they're still doing. That's that, 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 that's that, what that, that's yeah, bigger than ever. Exactly. So I think I was watching HBO, but certainly watching you know CNN or TBS, which my earliest memories are of watching something on TBS on this cable thing and being pissed off. I had to pay for something. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Uh, and now we have to pay for a million different services. It's it's gotten so much better. do forget um, it. Yes. <laughs> so, Alan, I know you grew up in, I believe, Birmingham, Alabama. And I, I read the book VJ that you and the other original VJs wrote. Oh, and I'm you sorry. talked in that about, you know, in high school, you were kind of, you were an athlete, but you were also into theater. You know, you had kind of a, a broad range of interests, but eventually it seemed like you wanted to go into acting. What, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, when I was growing up, going to high school, you could be everything. You didn't have to belong to a clique. Everybody everybody multitasked. You could be a jock on the football team, and I loved football, and I was a star receiver. And then I could go and do choir, or I could do theater. Nobody was labeled back Mm -hmm. in that day. Nowadays, my kids, my young kids, have trouble being pigeonholed. I went to uh, do some theater in my hometown of Birmingham, a little bit of a couple of months in between college and going to New York. And uh, as soon as I hit New York and went to drama school at Circle in the Square, 1980, the summer of, I was in heaven. I mean, New York in 1980, you could actually live the starving artist life. Mm -hmm. New York was in the toilet at the turn of the decade. Uh, My parents couldn't believe I was living there. And uh, I said, what? What? It was a mugging yesterday? Yes, but it didn't happen to me. (laughs) I'm all good. (laughs) If you go quickly enough through Times Square, it's all good. So it was a romantic life. And, uh, and I was kind of hooked. So t- tell the story of, of how you ended up on MTV. Man, it was the right place, right time. I, I had just done that video. I was in a new wave punk rock version of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream in the Lower East Side. I mean, I was, you know, I was starting to do those kind of things, but I was basically bartending to, to keep the rent, doing other odd jobs. Went to a way up north of Mississippi picnic in Central Park. It was, at this point would have been June every state has their own little celebratory parties in central park and you know i was there with the mississippi folks scaring everybody else away from the park of course singing way down south in dixie and you know carrying the flag <laughs> <laughs> i kid we were we were a liberal bunch but uh my wife at the time jan her father was a methodist minister who knew Bob Pittman's father, who was a Methodist minister? They were together in the conference. Bob comes to this party in a jacket, which I thought was weird. It was a very hot June day. Bob was there, I think, with John Sykes. Another, um, another MTV O G. Yes, both of them looking very dapper on a hot summer Saturday day. I'm introduced by my wife at the time, and we say hello. We just talk. He asked me what I'm doing. I said, you know, just a struggling actor. I just happened to be in a video. And the reason I said that is because he was working on this cable channel, which at that point, if you, you guys talk about this all the time, the early days of cable to people like me, especially living in New York, meant the Robin Bird porno show <laughs> or the Crank Call show. It was local cable access, and New York it was magic. But the the screw magazine guy, whatever his oh, name was, oh, yeah, because Manhattan Cable was one of the early pioneers of, you know, cable systems, sure. And so that's what cable meant to me. But he said he was working on this thing with Warner Communications and American Express, and we're going to play videos twenty four seven. It wasn't up and running. They hadn't, you know it was this was July or June. And I said, funny, I was in a Bowie video. Is't that interesting? And he said, yeah, And he walked away. And I walked away. and <laughs> we didn't talk anything, you know, until the next day, uh, Sue Steinberg calls me up. She was the executive producer on MTV and says, uh, hi, Alice Sue. And this is on my answering machine. And I'm waiting, you know, I'm going through all of the, uh, the messages, hoping that I got this gig and that gig and that gig and this gig and no calls from anybody else. She says, Bob said he ran into you and that you should come and audition for this thing. Wasn't even called MTV at the time. We had no name. You, you weren't there in the very beginning. There was no nope. name up until like the day before we went on air. So I said, sure, it's just another audition. I went down. I had, and the, the cliff notes are that I had three consecutive interviews, auditions down at the Hell's Kitchen Studios at 33rd and 10th on a Tuesday. And then it was terrible. I was awful, and they call me back a couple of days later. I come and do, like, probably a worse job <laughs> of auditioning. And then, and then they call me back a third time. It's like, have they no grace here? They're just <laughs> teasing me. And I came back, and I didn't think I did that much better. But I was comfortable at that point, you know, at sucking. So screw it. And uh, a day later, Sue calls and says I got the gig. It was really that fast and that much of a whirlwind. But until I went into the office and sat down at 44th and 6th Avenue, and she said, you really have the gig. This is how much we're going to pay you, and here's $500 to go get yourself some clothes, literally 500 bucks cash. I was like, and okay, again, the job is what? <laughs> <laughs> what am I supposed to do? It's crazy. Right place, right time.
0: And what was it like when you first got to MTV? I mean, it sounds like from everything I've heard and read over the years from Doug and, and you know, other people we've had on this, it was just kind of chaotic. But what was it like to be there?
1: I think that's it exactly. I was hired the day they said, you got it. It was three weeks to air, August the 1st, 81. I had three weeks to go to college with the subject that I that I loved, music. I I may not have known, you know, like Mark or J.J. knew uh, about rock and roll and all the various things about it. I wasn't a radio DJ at all, but I – so I had to get a three-ring notebook and start studying up on who the members of Def Leppard are or remembering, you know, when that Who album came
2: out. So you get this job, and by the way, you were still – even after you got your MTV job, were you still tending bar as well just in case? I was
1: bartending – I did not let go of that, that <laughs> nighttime gig. I was bartending at a cabaret, mixing daiquiris, because uh, I'd do the job in the daytime. I'd go mix my, my daiquiris at night, and a dude, finally, about three, four weeks into the job, because I kept it going. I didn't know how long MTV was going to last. Right. I, I I don't know if I had a contract or I was at will. Maybe they gave me a contract, but this thing might fold in no time. Better off bar, bartending. There you a go. A guy staring at me sideways, I could see coming out of his mouth, he wanted to say Mark. <laughs> I said, and he said, you look familiar. You look like one of those guys uh, on this new cable station, MTV or something. Mark, 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 Alan Hunter. Yeah, that's it. And I went, holy cow. I didn't suspect that he would recognize me, but he did. So you were, yeah. So to
2: that end, you were doing this thing kind of in a vacuum, right? It wasn't Absolutely. live. You're going down the studio. You're doing your thing every day. It's going out to... Parts of the country. I wouldn't say yet all over the
1: country. Yeah. Two and a half million people is how many homes were passed we started with, with MTV
2: it. in the beginning.
1: Right. Yep. Got
2: it. And so, w- so what point did you start to realize like, wow, this is actually happening and you're getting now maybe recognized beyond the guy at the bar but right. on the street? So w- w- can you remember like when you were like, oh, my God, this this thing
1: is actually working? Yeah, it was a total vacuum living in Manhattan, going to work every day, doing this cable show. We had no idea – Really, what its life was? It's not like any other kind of entertainment. You go see a movie, and you go to the theater to see people watching it. Uh, I couldn't watch it. I didn't know even how I looked in the mix of things. We get we get VHS air checks, you know, that they sent us off air so we could see. Oh, I come in between the video and the thing, and okay, got it. But living in Manhattan, we were in a bubble. It's when we began to be sent out to do promotional appearances. We we almost all have the same story. I was either in Ohio or Idaho or somewhere. I get shipped out of my first uh, appearance, and the local cable people pick you up in you know a crappy car because that was cable at the time <laughs> the the, uh, it, the executive owner and his assistant pick you up in his crappy car, but then somewhere we got into a limousine because they thought that was impressive. We go to the record store for the signing, and there's a thousand kids lined up around the block and Me, Nina, Martha, JJ, Mark, all had the same story. Who who are they here to see? And it's like you. It was (laughs) mind-blowing. Totally, you can't come from nothing, having no idea how you're coming off to the rest of the country, to then stand in front of a thousand people who all know you and want your autograph. For a starving actor kid, that was overnight and a mind-blower. And then, so we'd come back to the studio on a Monday, and we'd say, you... Did you guys have the same experience? Something is happening out there. Middle America is not just watching this stuff; it's twenty four seven, and right. they're rabid about it. And Martha, they they wanted me to give you a big hug, and they want to know all about you. And it was crazy. It was and they uh, were was, and they were buying records. They were, you know yeah, absolutely.
2: you know you know Sykes and those guys would run around you know to visit these cable operators in these far flung yeah. places like. They tell the story about going to, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma in nineteen eighty-two, yeah, yeah. whatever it is, eighty three, you know, whatever it was. And warm to cobble the,
1: members only jacket.
2: Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. But and then go to these record stores and like Cindy Lauper, Duran Duran, culture like would all be sold out,
1: you yeah. know, in the middle yeah,
2: of Tulsa, yeah. Oklahoma. And there was only one reason because
1: radio wasn't playing them. at, yeah. least, at, at least early on. Well, there was two battles to be fought, right? One was to get the record companies to respect MTV and to understand its power. Two was to get the cable companies to then carry us. Right. But so the ad campaign, I Want My MTV, worked so well. That's why they obviously, you know, scored the big ones about a year into it. But yeah, record companies get kids walking in first three or four months of MTV's existence saying, I want Duran Duran. And they're like, who? (laughs) (laughs) I want the Stray Cats even. And they were like, who's that band? Where did you hear them? What local radio station is playing that? It's like, no, it's on this cable thing called MTV. Mm-hmm. And once the record companies started having to fulfill those orders to the record stores, they were like, why are we sending 100 records <laughs> right, to North Dakota <laughs> for Duran Duran or U2? What's going on here? A year into it, the record companies were like, oh, you sell records. Yeah. And that's when they began to swing with Bob and John and the other executives began to work.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, like you're saying, it was very big in the Midwest where they actually had it. For those of us coastal elites, I grew up outside of DC. I don't think we had it right away. And even when we did, my parents wouldn't let me have cable. (laughs) So but we would get people to record MTV for us every year when we went to the beach. They had cable and they had MTV and like, I just wouldn't really leave. I would just sit inside and watch MTV all day.
1: It's so true. I mean, I, I, I'm so amazed that people still have those VHSs and those are the things that pop up on YouTube all the time. Uh, People have VHSs. They upload, you know, hours of MTV, which was fairly magic to watch because you had the commercial from 1981 and 82 and then you had the video it all kind of made sense. Uh, but that notion of people going to to the to house at the end of the block, the only one who had cable, to sit in their basement and watch it all afternoon after school, that phenomenon was real and it was crazy. It was the first place where people sat and vegged out right, for hours on end because no program ended after a half hour. That's right. Or an hour. It just kept going. It became a destination. Yes. Yeah. You live. You lived there. You just turned it on and stayed with it all day. It, it was the kiosk that everybody sat around and socialized. Right. They didn't have to pay attention to it all the time. But mm-hmm. when the new Pat Benatar video came on, or a new one from, you know, the English Beat or something, everybody would watch, right? Uh, and then talk about it the next day. So it's the, it was the first social networking, the social media.
2: Well, I always tell my kids, you know, it's hard to imagine how influential and, and center of the cultural universe MTV was. And it was like, you know, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, yep. Spotify, yep. all rolled into one somehow. And it's, well, it's the, really it's the, really hard to go
1: back there and imagine how, how it, big it, it was. It, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can't imagine a world when, that was cold and full of dinosaurs like we did. I mean, <laughs> it was the Pleistocene era back then. You know, I was living in New York, people getting raped and killed every day on the streets, and I was going to work on this cable system bubble. But it was everybody's kind of safe space. I think the, the, what I love most about it is the social sort of philosophical aspect of MTV, that it was the place where kids in middle America could feel like they were part of the party. I mean this is mm-hmm. the phenomenon, that they could see Madonna, dress like Madonna. Those clothes started showing up in the, the top copy – or whatever the stores are in the mall in their town, and they didn't feel as disenfranchised. They started seeing, you know, gay characters on on video. They started seeing Boy George dressing up, and uh, they said, "Oh, I'm living here in you know Idaho, and uh, maybe I'm not so unusual." So to me, that was the the kind of beautiful collective spirit of mtv it made everybody feel like they had a home whether you like and, and i i i preach this all the time and then i get memos please don't talk so much alan on sirius <laughs> xm <laughs> just play the music <laughs> but i'm like you know it was the biggest tent around the 80s was kind of that way we all got along you like white snake you like howard jones you like culture club you like springsteen melon whatever you waded through that video you didn't dig because there was some visual element you probably liked to get to the song that you liked and everybody sort of had a happy existence. So I credit that eclectic nature of MTV. Interesting.
0: So you and the other four original VJs were like kind of thrust into this together, doing doing a job that to your point earlier, like nobody really knew what the job was. It was it was a job that did not exist until you started doing it. That's right. And you were joking before about Mark Goodman, but what were the dynamics like? Because I know there was some some competition and Mark had said, like, I did not like Alan at first because he did not know enough about rock music <laughs> to be on this network.
1: Rock. Uh, Mark was a big snob and, <laughs> and dressed poorly. <laughs> he was so he was so on He had these old man orthopedic shoes he used to wear into the to the studio every day. And I thought, oh, my God, Mark, come on. So I was a tennis shoe guy. You know, I was very casual. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's true. Mark and JJ came with you know street creds. They they were both very famous at what they did in radio. Nina was sort of her her history was at least a little bit more. She wasn't famous by any means, but she was kind of in that hosting mood. And Martha and I were the youngest. You know, Martha was getting into radio and just in college still, so we were green, no doubt. I think Martha out of the shoot was really. Pretty fabulous. She immediately Mm -hmm. had a sense of herself and did very well. Mark and I circled each other like uh, people who didn't quite get it. I thought he was an asshole, and he thought I was a nerd, plain (laughs) and simple. He he would sit, you know, on the sidelines while I was doing cartwheels and jumping around the studio, you know, with props and stuff. And he thought, God, what a jerk! I can't believe it. This is supposed to be about the music. And he was serious about it and reverent about it, and I didn't know enough to be reverent. So I used the tools of my physical, you know, being and acting and and kind of performing what was going on in the video. Again, I thought, if I'm going to be this, the the traffic cop between that weird video and that weird video, why can't I have fun and be unusual and and be real, basically? So Mark and I circled each other for quite a while until one day he saw me. He, he saw me doing something with a prop. We had these little finger puppets, and Mark came on after me, got the finger puppets, took a tennis racket, and whacked those things across the studio because he was just mad. He said, I'm getting rid of Alan's props, <laughs> and, it, and it worked, and the producers and the camera guys, that was funny, Mark. That was really good, and and he thought, oh, well, maybe there is something to this because after a while, when we got to watch it a year into it, but it, it started happening before that, we realized we are... Writing the handbook. We are there is no template for what we do. Bob Pittman would sit there in his studio watching air checks and we'd show up one day and the plant, the ficus tree that was behind us is now off the studio. It's gone because Bob didn't like the ficus tree. It looks too <laughs> regular TV. <laughs> so he would change things out. things would move and change and do the beauty of MTV in the beginning and for quite a long time, change was the oxygen was good right if it didn't change and that was mtv's ethos forever and to this day never looking percent. back got a change before the audience knows it's changing and that meant graphics and the way the hosts operate so i really embrace that spontaneity flexibility going with the flow that's why i thrived i think for years in that environment well that's and
2: to that point you you actually sort of ushered in uh, sort of like the next era of MTV because you then became the guy who we would send out of the studio yep. and all over yep. the country to do all kinds of crazy things, um, including Spring Break and A Bucket in America. We'll talk about all that. But one of the things I want—I I, want sending me on those gigs too, by
1: the way. Doug. we'll get
2: into that. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get into that. But one of the things we do want to ask you about because uh, we think it's one of the milestone moments in the history of cable television, not only MTV, is Live Aid. Yeah. And um, so tell us what you remember about your day at Live Aid. You were you were kind of working sort of like the we didn't have a real MTV news department then, but you were sort of like the guy
1: who was out there behind the scenes doing interviews all day. Right. Yeah, really. The four of us were. I mean, when Live Aid came up, uh, as most things started to happen three or four years into it, we were all so busy Uh doing what we were doing. And you would come down or somebody else would say, hey, we're going to do the MTV VMAs at Radio City. It was like, wow, an award show. That's cool. You know, we we weren't always, you know, there in the planning stages of those things months in advance because we were doing our gig. But when Live Aid came up, up, I don't think anybody knew how important it was going to be or how big, really. I just don't think we realized it. We saw Band-Aid. We saw what Bob Geldof did for that U.K.-based Charity event and how much impact it could have, but when they said, you know, Live Aid is happening. That's when MTV, I think, grew up a little bit. That's when we got a social conscience. That's when we thought, why don't we Pied Piper, the audience we've created for four years now, and see if we can steer them to a more serious effort, like helping people in Ethiopia or people in America, wherever they might be impoverished. And it was like, really? Rock and roll and fun on MTV? We've been goofy all these years. Why are we getting serious? I thought it was a perfect thing for us to be a part of. I don't think any of us, uh, Mark, JJ, uh, JJ was in London at Wembley. Right. And then Martha, Nina, and Mark and I were in Philadelphia. I think when we showed up the day before and realized our set was going to be 20 yards, stage left of... (laughs) the center of the stage in some of the most historic performances ever. It was like, holy cow, this is a good seat. But that Mm -hmm. was great. It was a great day. And after that, I think we all felt a a new level for MTV. We felt that we had grown up a little bit. We certainly felt there was a a kind of power and a responsibility in a way that we had. Um, and, and, And I think at that point, Doug, to your point, that's when... I started getting tapped to do more things outside the bubble of the studio uh, to go. And the first gig was spring break to go, you know, to Daytona or Fort Lauderdale, wherever the hell it was. Daytona first, yeah. And for me to be the man in the street and, and get goofy. And I, that's, where I, that's what I loved. I hated interviews in the studio with Motley Crue. Love them, but how much can he say about this new album? Right, mm-hmm. how different it was. But that's
2: really where you seem to truly come into your own. It was like outside. I like the interviewing
1: studio. people. I liked yeah. interviewing, you know, real people. That David Letterman, man in the street kind of thing was my thing, and I wasn't afraid to jump into, you know, a pool of my skivvies and get dirty. I just wasn't. Right, it, mm-hmm. it was fun for me. So, and I think that's that raised my profile on MTV because MTV. Started going in that direction. In the yeah, well, like 80s. I say,
2: you you ushered in a new era. That was like the more lifestyle, the reality, unscripted yeah, yeah. lifestyle, you know, yeah. different, you know, not all, not, you know, music related, but not all music.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's when my salary got bigger than Mark's. So there! <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh-huh. You were talking about doing interviews and and that could be challenging. Do you have, are there any interviews that still stand out in your memory, either that went really, really well or that went absolutely... Straight down the toilet?
1: Oh, God. I mean, there's so many. I think whenever anybody asks, who did you meet and who did you interview, one, I, I usually just make a lot of shit up. <laughs> <Just 'cause laughs> who's going to check? I mean, did you meet Mick Jagger? and it? Oh, yeah. We did some blow in a bathroom somewhere, <laughs> I'm sure, you know. Who's going to know? Who's going to check? Frank Zappa was rough on me. Not mm-hmm. a mainstream MTV artist, but I was a huge Zappa fan, and he doesn't suffer fools at all.
3: No. Yeah.
1: And he was with the his daughter Moon unit. And every question I asked, it was like, Well, that's a dumb question, Al. Why'd you ask that? And she keeps elbowing, Dad, stop being mean to Alan. She was a guest VJ. She came back two weeks later. He came with her and apologized to me. So that was kind cool. of I, I actually remember that. And then Dweezel, Dweezel and Moon. Yeah, Dweezel was uh, there. They yeah. both had fun. I watched you know?
0: those sessions, both of them, both of yeah. the live DJs. Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So that was fun. I mean, I think throughout the years. Uh, the funny thing is that uh, the last interview I did as a freelancer for MTV was probably the the book the bookend of my career there was uh, going to Russia with Billy Joel. Mm. That was the most uh, satisfying interview because I was a huge fan. It was satisfying and impactful to be in Russia at the height of Perestroika in 87 and his historic play there to interview him, to go to the shows. To, we did a documentary for MTV called right. Rockin' Russia. That's right. Mm-hmm. and And that was like, you know, wow, after all these years of doing you know, fun stuff, silly stuff, and packful stuff, that was the coolest thing I'd done. And it was yeah. a long interview, and I felt good about it. So in the middle, it's all a blur.
2: Talking about MTV going in different directions, were uh, you
1: involved uh, at all in the rock and wrestling connection? Oh, my. Was I involved? <laughs> were you just serving it up? Were you just uh, serving it up? Yeah, that's you what mean, we just, do here, Alan. Yeah, you like, I believe that you were on MTV, <laughs> weren't you? Were you? I don't remember how. I read Wikipedia. Well, that was was kind of an early. It was 84-ish, I think. Ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right when I got there, 84. MTV had just started the VMAs, the Video Music Award show. Cindy was a big winner at that one. Uh, And then along came, I forget, I think it was Julian Goldberg, who was one of our producer guys, who came and said, hey, Al, there's going to be this wrestling thing with Cindy Lauper. And I was like, huh? What? Because she had done the video in which Lou Albano starred. Captain Lou. And her her uh, family and her lawyer, by the way, who became my lawyer, Elliot Hoffman, the tall oh, fatherly oh, right, type guy. It? And uh, we're going to we, – we've got this alliance with uh, Vince McMahon and the WWE or whatever it was called at the time, and we're going to see how it goes. So they thrust me into this. I don't remember how much of a part of it you were, but it truly was like you see down there in the arena and there's 10 lions. <laughs> You're going to go now and, and be in the middle of all of them. Good luck. Yeah. So I went to a couple of events at Madison Square Garden prepping for it and hanging around the wrestlers. I'd never hung around them before. So my sense was to be rock and roll irreverent and make jokes and fun of it. And the first night I did that just backstage, they they told me that's not cool. Don't do that because <laughs> they they were mad and mm-hmm. and looked like they could be very mean and angry at me. <laughs> so I was like, mm-hmm. oh, God. But we did the press conference to, to, to set up the brawl to settle it all or the war to settle the score, the first one. And Rowdy Roddy Piper's there with Lou Albano on the other side and Cindy, and I'm the moderator, and we rehearsed this thing as much as we could. Rowdy's the sweet guy off camera. We're kind of choreographing things. He's telling Lou what he's going to do, and Lou's telling him what he's going to do, and then we start. And they start going at each other, and Cindy's yelling and Lou's screaming, and I'm in the middle acting like uh, Gene, Gene the, the – the, mean, the, Gene. mean Gene. Mean Gene Jean Mean Gene Okerlund. <laughs> Well, it seems like there's uh, some bit of irritation here on the show, and I was like acting. It was really fun until Roddy gets up and stalks over me and stands over me at the table and goes, You little pencil-neck pipsqueak, you need to shut up. Someone needs to – and I was like, well, that's not on script. <laughs> And he grabs me by the tie and the neck and hauls me over the table, totally not choreographed, (laughs) slams me down on the ground and yells at me some more. And then Lou comes and kicks him and they go off stage and I end the segment and we'll be right back. (laughs) I'm like, oh, my God, what was that? And I swear Rowdy came over and said, hey, you all right, little buddy? (laughs) You mean this is all a scam? This is not real? So, yeah, I was in the middle of it. We did the two other things. We did the Madison Square Garden show. Yeah, there was a couple of big events,
2: and it really – that was like kind of rocket fuel, you know – like yeah. Live Aid was kind of rocket fuel for
1: MTV. That was kind of like rocket fuel for the WWE. They, they kind of well, went mainstream yeah, after yeah. that. Yeah, Vince, Vince was having trouble trying to get into the bigger market. He was right. trying to get, get wrestling mainstream, and there was two different factions at the time as I remember. There's a good A&E documentary on yeah. about that whole thing, which I was a part of, and I learned more watching that thing. But the alliance was weird, Vince hooking up with who I don't know who made the deal less Garland. Probably. I think it was probably it's probably well, probably <laughs> yeah. less than Bob, yeah, Bob They Pittman went out Les to Garland. have a drink yeah. one night, and said, yeah, that'd be funny. Let's do that. Yeah, but it increased their. I don't know if it did anything for MTV to be honest.
2: We were already- I remember people going, why why would MTV do that? Because again, we were still all about music then. Yeah. It was, people yeah. were like, but it, you know, MTV had this, you know, the people that ran MTV had this. Real nose for the culture in general, just not not necessarily just music,
1: but like where to, you know, and uh, and lifestyle. But again, we're yeah, we're promoting TV shows and movies. Yeah. We're the place that Andy Warhol comes down to promote art in New York. You know, we were everything to to everybody. So we're not wrestling. I used to
2: say all roads, all roads lead through MTV. At least they did in in that in that era.
1: They kind of did. I mean, yeah. and, and all those roads were very New York centric, which I think is why MTV desired at the end of the decade to branch out to LA and try to bring a little bit you know, more flavor from around the country. That's why the reality shows really hit home because then MTV at spring break and the road show I did, A Monk in America, when they started aiming the camera at people, you know, that was the beginning of it all. That's when everything changed. You mm-hmm. know, I don't have to live in New York. I can do something goofy. And right. one day there'll be a thing called TikTok. <laughs> well i can be famous as long as i want for 30 seconds
0: T- to this day if someone asks me if i watch wrestling or care about wrestling i'm like is cindy Lauper involved could if, <laughs> if, if cindy Lauper's not involved i don't give a yeah. shit
1: who cares so, <laughs> Well, I, I think it's certainly, you know, she has mixed emotions about uh, that. She didn't really want to get into it. David Wolfe, her, her manager, BF at the time, thought it was a good idea. And she had fun with it for a while. I think it was, it was weird to see Cindy actually take a swing at somebody in one yeah. of those matches.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think you and I drove down to Philadelphia once on a Saturday night to meet Cindy and Dave and do a bunch of. Went to at uh, the old Spectrum, the old arena oh, That's there.
1: right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah,
2: we And we did a bunch of interviews, you know, as promotion yeah. for whatever the next big event was. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was like, oh, this is glamorous on a Saturday night <laughs> <laughs> backstage at a wrestling show in Philadelphia. This is showbiz, huh? Yeah.
1: This is high <laughs> level here, is it? I, well, we were a little arrogant at that point because we, we were. had such amazing New Year's Eve parties and, you know, MTV was hot. And we were it, kind of the kings of New York. It, we, yeah.
0: As you said, you guys were the kings of New York. It was is wonderful, exciting time period for you. And eventually, at some point, you had to decide to leave or or that or get fired. Yep. And I believe in your case, you decided to leave. Talk a little bit about that decision, how you reached it and, and, you know, how conflicted you were about doing that.
1: Look, five years into it, we were all going, how long can this last? I can't believe it's lasted this long. If you're working for a channel that believes change is the dealio. That's their manifesto. We mm-hmm. will change everything and recycle it and get something new and something new. Why would five VJs hang out? I think we were a good core base for sure. And we started seeing new ones come in like downtown Julie Brown and Adam Curry and that. But when JJ and Nina got let go, we thought, oh, okay. I felt that my uh, star was still kind of on the rise there at MTV because the I was on board the new direction, which is not just being a video jukebox. Mm-hmm. The glamour, the the allure of the video jukebox 24-7 started to wear off around 85. Mm-hmm. MTV had a hard time really getting ad dollars. And it was much easier to sell a show like Remote Control mm-hmm. or to promote Spring Break or whatever. So they started moving in that direction for economic reasons. And I thought it was the, a fine evolution for MTV to embrace lifestyle. So I felt Kind of happy, and when I did the Amuck trip, which you mentioned earlier, Doug, which was a 30-day trip across America in '86, me driving with a crazy band of producers and and uh, and writers to just mess with people and send videos back of uh, tons of fun as hellacious as it was, I begged Doug not to send me on that that gig. I just had a child, 1986. You and Doug. Uh, no, mean, me, and me, Joe, Joe, me, me and Joe
2: Devola. We, we we sat outside the White Horse Tavern and twisted your arm. He, he literally he has a newborn baby at home. His 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 wife does not want him to leave. And we're like, you got to do
1: this, dude. Yeah, thirty days on the road uh, with a beautiful model as your sidekick. <laughs> I said, I got one word, Doug. Hormones. <laughs> Don't send me with a model, please. But that, but I was on board that kind of programming because I thought it really was the future of it. And so I was there. I think uh, when JJ and Nina were let go, then it was like, oh, well, who's next? The biggest surprise was when they let Martha go. And there was some, you know, Michigas behind how that happened about a half year later. Mark and I kind of looked at each other at that point, not out of fear, because after A Muck in America, I re-upped with Bob a long three-year contract, a really sweet deal. I mean, I, I, I credit Bob for— Being my biggest supporter at that point, he saw that I could handle the future of MTV, and uh, I was really riding high. But Mark and I stood with each other and said, how long can we go go on being VJs? Let's get out to L.A. The whole business was starting to move to L.A., interestingly enough, in 86, 87. Record Mm -hmm. industry was starting to move more out there, but we thought, "Ah, I want to go live the life. So I put my, uh, Mark and I, like just a week or two apart, put in our resignation to MTV that last year. So in, into my seventh, sixth year, I said, I'm not going any further. I will not ex- uh, take my options, two more options after that. My father thought I was nuts. Of course, parents do that sort of thing. Well, you got a good job finally. Why do you want to give it up? He didn't like the words like burnt out. What do you mean burnt out? (laughs) My dad was a businessman, but he's like a factory worker. He said, really? Screw the burnt out. Take the check. So, but I felt in control. Mark and I left three weeks apart from one another, August of 1987. Eventually, Mark came back and did a bunch of freelance work. So did Martha. Uh, She came back and did a lot of stuff. Uh, I came back and did the Billy Joel thing. So we, we, you know, we kind of continued on thereafter. But I feel it was definitely my choice. It was totally the right way to go. I, I would have taken another year or two because the minute I landed in Los Angeles, the writers went on strike and there was no pilots mm-hmm. to be done. <laughs> so right. I picked a bad time, but I did learn how to play golf.
2: But you're, but you are right. <laughs> the, 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 the MTV, you know, you know, we, we lived by the we have to con- always be changing. So like the anything, a five year run of anything on MTV was was a lifetime. Yeah. Um absolutely. And, and, and you're and you were always looking at like a, you know, sort of like trying to get get ahead of the next generation of sort of young viewers that were gonna come on board. And so it was just inevitable like to just keep on and the only reason something like the real world could survive 25
1: years is because they literally change the cast every yeah. year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, so, so it's always different. Well, I've always been a big supporter of people who go, "Oh, MTV's not the same anymore." I go, "Thank God for that." <laughs> but 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 why be bitter? It's evolution. I mean, right. uh, and particularly particularly that beast, MTV was born out of chaos and that's that was their thing and uh, change was good. I I totally supported it even and because I got a chance to say no, that felt kind of good to say no mm-hmm. to the man. And Doug was sort of the man, but I didn't I was say, say no that, to no. been, that might have that yeah, been me, but might oh, have been right. you. No, I'm not sticking around for my big fat raises the next two years. Again, to my dad, what are you crazy?
0: It's weird that you didn't want to continue working for this man who forced you to travel when you had just had an infant.
1: <laughs> oh, dig this. Uh, here's the last story of that: is that he they they kicked my ass, put me out there on a muck in America, which was a total success. Loved it. Uh, the reason I got a new contract. So they were like, Ooh, this kind of stuff works. Let's send Bon Jovi to Jamaica for a <laughs> week and Alan can host that too. And that was about uh, six months later. Now my child is going on a year. And they go, and we need you to go, Alan, and host this Bon Jovi bacchanal in Jamaica for a week. And I was like, Oh, that's not a good idea. You remember that last time? Well, I, that was on that one. Is, if I recall,
2: there was um, mushroom tea involved. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was
1: lots of was Red Stripe here, here, beer, and no, that no, was yeah. like,
2: magic muffins. Magic muffins. And here's Magic a muffins. here's a, here's a real 80s uh, obscure item for you. The, uh, <laughs> the uh, along with the I don't know what she was doing there, but along with Bon Jovi, who were the headliners of the contest, I can't yes. remember what it was called, yes. um, was, it was, uh, club, it was
1: it was Hedonism, Club Hedonism or it was Club Hedonism where we went. It was Hedonism, it was weekend, hedonism
2: was weekend. Yeah. In, with in Bon Jovi. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. This is
2: disgusting 80s singles yeah. hotel. Uh, but the uh, I don't know what she was doing there, but like the co-star for the yes. weekend was yes. British
1: pop tart yes. Samantha it. Fox. Say it.
2: You remember you Samantha I,
1: Fox? You think it was easy? I'm getting, for me I'm getting to I'm focus getting, but, on
2: my job. Oh my god! But I'm getting Jen. You don't remember Samantha Fox?
0: <laughs> I do, but I, I was thrown by you calling her a pop tart. She had a song
2: <laughs> like "Do you want to touch me?" No,
0: it was called "Touch Me." Touch, touch me. me.
2: Yeah. So pop tart being for like pop star yeah. and like I get like what that, you're that, saying that,
1: that tardy British thing. You
0: know that. Yeah. that
2: Yep, he's a Page yep. Six yes. girl.
1: Yeah, in yeah. Britain, Page Six they actually had naked women on their their public newspaper. Uh, look, Samantha was part of that six uh, eighty six eighty seven New Jack Swing freestyle. Uh, you know, uh, Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam and the mm-hmm. Brit Stars and the Jody Watleys and
2: all. Yeah, it was part of the, yeah, the dance music was starting yeah, to take hold. Yeah, she was there with her yeah. creepy dad, um, her creepy
1: dad managers, I remember as well. I thought she married some rich dude. That, no, that was... That, uh, that could have happened. That was, that was another English artist. But yeah, so there we were um, in Jamaica and uh, my wife couldn't come with the baby because they wouldn't allow it. So uh, I got back from Jamaica. You guys gave me a week in Los Angeles to recover, and all I did was just get shit from my dear wife <laughs> the whole time <laughs> at the Sunset Marquee because the, the breaks themselves began to air the next week. So we recorded them, and they would air them throughout the day, all day long. And so she's she's thinking – you rat bastard, I can't believe you went off again. And I was like, honey, it's my job. I got to do my job to feed that little critter. There and you then go. she would see a segment with me with a beautiful woman who's giving me a massage on the beach. <laughs> 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 and she'd go, yeah, tough job. I said, it's acting, honey. It's acting. It's funny television. You, you were my
2: neighbor then. I lived on in the West Village on West 11th Street. You had that, you guys lived in this great
1: carriage house. Yes, 10th and Hudson.
2: Yeah, right around the corner. And I can remember when you were gone, like seeing her on a Saturday afternoon with the baby and the stroller and going, I need to go. I, need to go. I, got, I don't think I should talk to
1: Jan right now. <laughs> hey, uh, it's Doug. Doug, you come back here. You bastard. ruined my marriage. All right. well, oh, she got over it. She understood it later but it's, new moms don't need that kind of hassle. No, yeah. they don't. That's, that's a cliche story of someone who's whose uh, you know, cachet is rising in his television business. He's got to go and do his gig. Do gig. It was a tough juggle because it, it to, to be immersed in the world of rock and roll, your last question might be, what was it like to be around that kind of circus for six years? And that really is the reason I had to bug out of it because even though we, we were a part Of all of the stuff, the late night parties and some of them that went way too long. But eventually the five of us had to get up and go into a studio and do a damn daily job. That's the only thing that kept me from total destruction. I got pretty good willpower and at three o'clock, maybe no more bumps (laughs) because I got to get in the studio at eight. We had real jobs. Say, but I you, you could go, as don't. you
2: mentioned earlier, you could go around New York all night in those days, being Alan Hunter or Mark Goodman and go to yes. any club, any restaurant. I mean, yes. everybody was very happy to have you. You were the kings of New York.
1: Back it, it was weird. We were weird. We were weird level celebrities. We weren't movie stars like Tom Cruise, but we but we were in people's lives all day long, every damn day. And that bouncer sat and looked at you and said, come on in, dude. And maybe cooler. At least certainly, in the eyes of the audience, we represented the coolest thing going That's on right. the planet at the time, but That's uh so we we managed to make it through, but I was tired at that point, and certainly having a little bambino was a good stepping <laughs> off time for me to get some rest. But All right, it was so cool, unbelievable.
2: two final questions we have a two parter first one
1: is, do you have a favorite video music video? Oh. yeah, I got i uh, they. <sighs> They rotate. Top three would be a Peter Gabriel video, and it's Shock the Monkey or Sledgehammer, either one of those two. Springsteen's Brilliant Disguise just popped up on my favorite list the other day because I love Tunnel of Love so much, the album. And that was 86, 87 when Mm -hmm. video directors and artists were trying to reinvent the wheel so somebody had the great idea to do it in black and white and one shot and just dolly in. That's right. My my all-time favorite is Once in a Lifetime from Talking Mm -hmm. Heads. It was early. It represents those early romantic years for me, having this cool job. And David Byrne in front of a weatherman green screen with weird images going on, doing his weird thing in front of it. And that song, that liquid opening that sounds like mm-hmm. tinkling water, right, um, reminded me of those early MTV years. And so for all of that, that's to date my favorite song and video, I think, from the from the era. Well, that's a great answer. Thank you. You want to hit him with the last one, Jen?
0: Yeah, I was just going to say it's funny that you say that because one of my very solid early memories of watching early MTV is the "Burning Down the House" video. Oh wow! Because I was God. like, "What the hell is this?" Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, "Stop Making Sense" is the one of the great concert films of all time from '83. Sure. He only topped it with "American Utopia." You know. Yes, right, which a couple is of fantastic. Years ago. It's amazing, but uh, he's such a pioneer.
0: Our traditional last question for all of our guests Uh-oh. is. What is your favorite basic cable show of all time? And let's just leave MTV out of it since obviously you were involved in MTV.
1: Breaking Bad, I would have to say, is probably the heftiest show. Well, there we watched. go.
0: A but that's a, that's a basic for, cable show. Basic yeah. cable.
2: And and one of the greats. It was a dream come true to have you here, Alan. You are a, uh, you what are a great a, a great friend, a great... Easy on the great. A great figure uh, in terms <laughs> of like the MTV history and... The way you talk about it, I mean, it really, you know, it really puts a lot of it into perspective, and it's something we, you know, we talk about MTV a lot on this podcast, and it was really great to have you here to kind
1: of, you know, sort of give the full story from the inside. So, we well, put- you made me relive it today. I mean, on any given day, it's like yesterday, or I, I never did it, or mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a bizarre beast that is always present. The eighties have never been bigger nowadays, which is kind of weird, but it's the demo people who. You know, from forty to sixty, it's a sweet spot for them, and it's yep. good memories. And they love Martha Quinn. And hell, we were in their damn lives twenty four seven. Yes, you were. We're burned into their city. Well, and and you, and, you, and you still and you
2: still and you still are uh, via uh, Sirius
1: uh, XM. And I hear other, you in my car every day. Else. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. sorry. All I do is apologize all day long. Sorry. <laughs> well,
2: we're not sorry at all, Alan. Thanks for being
1: here. Doug's good seeing you, my friend, and meeting everybody else. Thank you.
0: I don't know about you, Doug, but I could have talked to Alan Hunter for like eight more hours, maybe just asking him questions about early MTV, a subject that I never tire of. Uh, he was a great guest.
2: He was, he was an amazing guest. I feel the same way. And obviously, I could talk about MTV all day. I do a lot here. And I, I thought he just brought like great perspective to it. It's it's He's a very bright guy. And uh, he always had a great sense of himself and where he fit into the mosaic of the of the five VJs. Uh, but it seems now all low these years later, and it's many, it's 40 years later, I think he's able to look back with sort of, you know, a really great perspective and through a really cool prism.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you touched on this a little bit in our conversation, but, and we've said this before on the podcast, but it is, it is hard to convey to people who were not alive and cognizant during the '80s, like what a big deal MTV was. Like it was just, it was like you've said, like a a conduit to everything that was going on in the culture. And the VJs were so much a part of that. And I like I would, if I had access to MTV, if I got, you know, the VHS tapes of it, or I was on vacation, I would just sit there and watch it for hours and hours and hours and never get sick of it. Yeah. And it also like it didn't just inform, you know, what was going on in music. I mean, I think the way that a lot of people my age and, and even filmmakers like were absolutely informed by the MTV style. I mean, that started with Miami Vice, but David Fincher, Spike Jones, a lot of many, many others got their start doing music videos, directing music videos. But I, I also just think watching music videos just had a huge impact on my brain and the way that I consume information and, and, uh, and the way that I watch film and television. And it's, that sounds like, Kind of crazy, but if you if you grew up watching MTV, you probably know what I mean by that.
2: Yeah, the the impact and influence of MTV was felt in in so many different ways. I mean, I remember you know they used to complain, the critics used to complain that MTV was ruining uh, the attention spans of young America. And guess what? It probably did. I mean, look where <laughs> look where we are today with TikTok and Twitter and everything's in super short bites. So. Yeah, you know, and I would say you could draw a straight line from, you know, MTV to Instagram and uh or the real world to you know to Instagram so yeah it's it it really is hard to wrap your head around it although I think Alan's done a really great job of like I said putting his career his MTV career the VJs into the the proper perspective no one had that job there were only five of them they invented it they were kind of like their own rock band right you know the five VJs and Mm -hmm. like I said you know in New York City uh which is you know where they were all living they were the kings of that town they could walk I literally could walk into any bar. Any club anywhere, and get first the, the same first class treatment that you know a giant movie star would or a giant rock star would. Um, mm-hmm. They were they were huge stars, and that must have been tough for him to walk away from.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it was. Uh, and, and we talked about Live Aid a little bit, and that whole experience. And what's funny is that after, and I was reminded of this reading uh, the book that Alan and, and the other VJs wrote. Like they were criticized very much for seeming you know, like they didn't really know what they were talking about during the broadcast. And like, when I go back and look at Live Aid, which I have done many times, what what's strikes me now actually is that I, I feel like all of them, whether they were as knowledgeable as say Mark was, there was a genuine like, I'm excited about this music and this concert. Yes. And I'm so excited to be here. And and yeah, I could maybe tell you a little bit about Led Zeppelin. Maybe I can't, but I just, I know that this is a huge deal. I'm really, really excited. Yeah. And I'm not going to call out names, but like turn on E or turn on anything where there's like coverage of entertainment now. And I never think that the people doing the hosting have a goddamn thing, know anything about what they're talking about, really are invested in it. I, I feel very strongly they're there because and I get it like they're there to to put their image out there. And I did not feel that way about even looking back at it now. I felt like they were just genuinely excited to be there.
2: They got a lot of criticism, you know, in the aftermath of that. Um, I feel like sort of they got set up a little bit um by mtv in the way it was staged and and kind of produced mm-hmm. um uh and they were they were you know there, there was a lot of gushing going on but that's how everybody felt to be there it was a pretty exciting day and a, a, a crazy event it was a turning point it was a turning point for them because that sort of started the in in the arc of things right that might have been the the you know the, the the point where the vjs began to be looked at a little differently than they had been in the previous four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also a day where, you know, MTV news behind the scenes, you know, started to establish itself. And very shortly after that, uh, we went out and hired Kurt Loder, which meant the VJ stopped doing some of the big interviews. And so the, the dynamic shifted, certainly kind of internally and on air. And mm-hmm. it was sort of the beginning of a new era. But, you know, to that end, Alan um, was always a bigger, broader guy. And he wasn't, you know, he his job was to introduce videos, but he had a lot more talent than that and was really great at, you know, as we talked about being out on the street, whether it was spring break or wrestling or a muck in America or Live Aid and out there talking to people. And, you know, post-Live Aid, a whole new era of MTV came in, um, more of a lifestyle channel, which eventually became more of a reality TV channel. And here we are today. So right. stories, stories for another day, maybe.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the fact that, like Alan and Martha, for example, were a little greener to me. That actually was kind of a benefit because it it enhanced this idea that I, you know, a kid really not even a teenager, not even a preteen, like the, they they were sort of peers. Like they weren't so much older. Yeah, that could be they, me, right? Yeah, exactly. Like I actually did want to be a VJ for a little while. There. Who, who did it?
2: <laughs> I mean, if you were if you were a rock and roll fan, and, you know, Martha, you know, was probably 22, but she looked like she was 17 or 18. Right. She was literally the girl next door. It's like, why can't that be me? Right.
0: Right. I think yeah. that was uh, part of the allure, too.
2: Yeah. Well, Jen and I still clearly want our MTV. We hope you do, too. And we hope you uh, enjoyed listening today. And uh, join us next time on BASIC.
0: BASIC is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM.
2: Hosted by Jen Cheney
0: and Doug Herzog.
2: Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli.
0: Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer.
2: Sound design and music by Jerry Danielson.
0: Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher.
2: Recorded and edited by Zach Spisner.
0: You can find BASIC on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us.
2: Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an
3: episode.